Please join me once again in a word of prayer as we begin. Fathers, we've just sung. We ask that you would speak to us through your word, to us as individuals and as a church. Because it's, it's by your word that we are led. You are the head of this church. And your word that you've given to us to instruct us into how to live and how to worship is perfect. And we trust it fully. But Lord, we also need your assistance, both to understand it as well as to discern how to apply it. Lord, all of us here are in very different circumstances. Some are in the midst of very severe trials. Some are, are, are discouraged. They're losing heart. Some may not even know you. But Lord, I pray that you would minister to each one of us according to our needs. That you would open our eyes, that you strengthen our hearts, that, that you would give us resolve to want to live for you and for your glory. Help us to see the, the emptiness of all the things that this world tantalizes us with. That we'd see those things for what they are and see you and your glory for what it is and live for that end. So, again, Father, we ask for your, for your assistance as we look at your word and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, last month, the elders gathered together uh, for a weekend just to consider how uh, we can grow as a church to discern what are the things that we need to work on as we're seeking to uh, fulfill our vision of wanting to be a church of maturing Christians, helping others to mature in Christ-likeness. And this morning, I, I simply want to distill the essence of what we concluded from that, uh, that weekend away as, as a leadership team. And so if you're visiting, that's great. Uh, it's, it's almost like you're, you're uh, kind of getting a window into what our church is really like and where we want to grow. And I, and I, hope, I hope this is encouragement to you. And it's actually only been six months since the last time I gave a state of the uh, state of the church message. Um, but because of all the things that have happened to us over the, over the last six months, the elders really thought it'd be wise for us to um, uh, to have another one and to, to communicate to you uh, how we want to grow as a church in the year ahead. So uh, some of the changes that we've experienced just in the last six months. Uh, we installed two new elders, which uh, I just can't say enough about these men. Uh, they've been a, a, a tremendous encouragement to me. I was telling um, a, a member on the drive-in today how uh, they're, they're, they've gone above and beyond uh, what I would have expected. Not because I had low expectations, <laughs> but uh, they, they are some of the hardest working men I know, and they give countless hours uh, not just to serving and preparing messages and teaching, but to praying. And, and, and uh, they, they definitely feel a burden, not just for the success of this church as an institution, but really for each individual soul. And that's very evident. Um, I wish I could. Um, I wish you guys could all see that. And I'm sure you see it to some extent. Um, we also brought on two new deacons and their, their help has also been greatly uh, beneficial to to our church. We hired an additional pastor, uh, Peter or Estuardo. Uh, he was supposed to be here by now, but you know the Lord in His sovereignty changes things, so he'll be another another month still. But we greatly look forward to his presence with us to help us and 
our, our Spanish ministry, but also biblical counseling, helping us with a lot of the administrative tasks. Uh, he's a very gifted man in that way and uh, a good teacher as well. So I know you guys are very eager to have him here. Uh, you're, you're aware of our weaknesses and um, I look forward to how he's going to strengthen us as a church. We also moved locations. Uh, we were three years uh, over in Beaverton, and the Lord has opened us, uh, given us this opportunity to worship here in a church on Sunday mornings, and it's also been a great blessing. But with any change, there's a lot of transition, a lot of things we've got to get used to. And it's been a just, just on that, just a lot of intensity, a lot of pressure that I think uh, none of us fully expected. We also increased our devotion to Sunday school, uh, placing it in the second hour of the service. Uh, just so more people could be involved. Um, and th- we also provided a snack ministry for families with kids so that they could uh, continue to participate. So they wouldn't, you know, you don't want, if your kids are hungry, that would be hard. And so uh, we have a 30-minute fellowship hour uh, typically. And then we go to Sunday school. And uh, that's been a transition. But on top of all these transitions that, uh, and changes that we've made, there's been... Uh, It's just been six months of challenges, uh, not, not so much for the church, but for the individuals in the church. The number of trials is it's tough. It's, it's, it's surprising, uh, and the intensity of it. We've had at least three complicated pregnancies, ten or so families. I've had members in the hospital for extended amounts of time, uncertain of how those are going to end up. Uh, hardest, three of our families, tragically. Had family members die. And it just seems like one thing after another. It's been hard. And, and honestly, there's no sign of things letting up. <laughs> you know, I'm tempted to just put a, a warning sign. Anybody that comes into the church, you know, enter at your own risk. Uh, and, as, and that's, again, I think that's the heart of why Ben chose. I asked the Lord that I might grow. That is our heart. That's been our desire. We want to be a church of growing Christians. But sometimes, sometimes the Lord's methods are, are hard. Yeah. But it's Julio said they're good. He's good. Um, and so in light of this, especially these trials, I thought, as I thought about what text to teach on as I present this state of the church, my mind was, was drawn to 1 Peter. Because 1 Peter is, a, is an epistle written to a church through, that's going through significant suffering, significant trials. And so if you turn in your Bibles, want to look at 1 Peter chapter 1, and just a few verses there, verses 13 through 15. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, 
You shall be holy, for I am holy. But before, um, again, I explain what the elders believe is the state of the church, I, I want to put this, the, um, the things we want to grow in in a theological context out of First Peter. And so you can think of the state of the church portion of this as kind of the, our, our, our thoughts on how we want to apply First Peter chapter 1, verses 13 and 16. Uh, very simple outline to this passage. Uh, think critically, hope eternally, and pursue holiness. Let's look at that first point in, verses, in verse 13. Think critically. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Peter essentially tells us there we need to be ready to think critically. The, the first word there, therefore. It points back to actually Peter's previous exposition of the greatness of our salvation as he, as he just is captured in thinking about all the great things that the Lord has done for us in sending Christ. And, and especially the wonderful promises that are going to be ours when he returns. If you look at uh, verse 4, he says, We're going to give an, an inheritance that is imperishable, it's undefiled and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Our Peter says, in light of this, in light of the greatness of this salvation, we need to think critically. We need to think well. Literally, the phrase is, gird up the loins of your mind. It's a figure of speech drawn from the Middle Eastern practice of, you know, they would, they would wear long robes. And so when they wanted to get to work or they wanted to run to something, they would have to pick up their robes and, and tighten their belts so that they wouldn't trip. So it refers here to decisively preparing your mind to think in a certain way. And, and namely to receive their hope. Recognize, think about the hope that is yours. And this is actually how one commentator explains this verse. He says, instead of letting their thoughts, purposes, decisions hang loose while they move casually along as impulse and occasion may move them. The readers are to gird up their minds like people who are energetically set on going somewhere. They're not being casual in their thinking. They're being purposeful. They're being critical in their thinking in a good way. And the second description of how we're to think is that we're to be sober-minded. It basically just means we're not to think like a drunkard. We're not to be foggy or uh, uh, vague in our thinking. We, we need to think rationally and logically, critically. So obviously this means we, gotta, we have to give attention to how we're thinking. We, we can't just let everything we hear and everything we see just take our minds and direct it where it wants our minds to go. Right? Like when, when we're watching TV or listening to the radio, we're, we're largely just being passive rather than thinking critically about is this right? Is this true? Is this good? Is this helpful? We can't let our minds wander and meditate on the nonsense that we're being bombarded with all the time. 
And, and, and the thing is, we need to think critically about what we're hearing in the media, for instance, or even in the news. Um, not just because we think it's wrong. I mean, some of it may be very good. And, but we need to think about, if it is wrong, why is it wrong? Not just identifying that it's a problem, but why is that? So that we would know that we, we, our convictions are rooted in the Word of God, but we're not, we ourselves aren't just being led by our own hearts that, that are likewise prone to deception. It also means we should limit how much time our minds live in, a, in fantasy land. And what I mean by that is how much time we just live thinking about movies that aren't real, listening to songs that are not depicting reality, playing video games, reading novels. And again, those things aren't bad. They're not evil in and of themselves. But again, to think critically means we, need to, we can't live in a fantasy world. Right? And when we're, in, when we're immersing ourselves in things that are fantasy, we tend to ignore reality. And we need to think as those people who want to live rightly, we don't want to just live in a fantasy world. So we have to be guarded. We, we need to let our minds meditate on, on what is good and acceptable and perfect. And such entertainment is only helpful if it inspires you to actually to do something, to think differently, to, to be a better servant of Christ. And if it doesn't, it's just a distraction. And we have to be honest, we're distracted a lot of the time. I mean, we can only assess our own lives, but throughout the day, how often are you thinking about serving Christ and the, the promises that are being that are going to be yours when he returns. Often we're thinking about things that are rather mundane or silly. And so we need to gird up the loins of our mind. We need, to think, we, need to, we need to take control of our thoughts. We need to think purposefully. And Peter shows us that right thinking is critical to our obedience. Right, and particularly to this command to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That really brings us to the second point, which is we need to hope eternally. That word set your hope, um, the word hope in particular, it, it doesn't refer to a wistful longing like lot, the English word hope, that we, we hope we get something for Christmas. The, 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 the Greek word actually refers to something you can have absolute confidence in. What are you confident in? What are you sure is going to happen? Like We don't know what the weather is going to be like tomorrow. Even if all the... <laughs> The news guys say it's going to be raining. Like, sometimes it changes, right? This is saying, what can you be confident in? This? What, what are you certain of? And he says, have your hope fully fixed on Christ's return. And the, the reason Peter tells these suffering believers to fix their hope fully on Christ's return is frankly because that's the only thing that they can be certain of. That's the only relief that they can be certain of. God may provide relief to the pain. He might provide relief to the suffering. Or it might get worse. So this is the thing you've got to love about the Scripture. It doesn't, it's not sunshine and rainbows and lollipops. It's, it's honest. That's why you look at the Old Testament. It's not pretty about how the saints often live. They get themselves into a lot of trouble. And they make a mess of their lives often. The Bible's honest with us because it cares about us. It's God's word to us that we might know how to live. And, and here, it's just honest 
your life may not get easier. And so how, if that's true, how do you not just despair? How do you not just give up? How do you not just feel self-pitiful? Well, you cling to what you know to be true. And what every born-again believer knows for certain is that Christ is going to return. And when he returns, you are going to be to be to experience glory that is beyond description. That, that Paul says that the sufferings of this present world aren't worthy to be compared. It'll be that much better. And the way to guard ourselves from discouragement and depression as we plod through this life is, is to fix our hope on the only certain thing that there is, and that is Christ's return. Christ's word. Otherwise, we're going to find ourselves constantly crushed, disappointed, fearful. Because if we put our hope in things that aren't certain, we're likely going to lose them. We live in a world that is defined by death, decay, and destruction. Since the fall, everything dies. Sin is dominant. We're going to lose. We're going to experience pain. And the only way I think we'll be able to endure these fiery trials that test our faith is to continue to entrust our souls to Christ daily and to guard our hearts from putting our hope and our confidence in vain things. Things that will not satisfy. But at the same time, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't look forward to things. To set your hope fully on the grace to be brought to us at the coming of Christ doesn't mean you can't look forward to things. It just means you just can't... Those things aren't necessarily certain. You can look forward to the weekends, but that weekend may not be as good as you think it's going to be. And we need to recognize that. It's okay to look forward to having your grandkids come over to visit. (laughs) But when they get there, it may not be as good as you expected it to be. Especially if they're my kids. No, I I love my kids. Um, The things that often we put our hope in are aren't certain. And Peter would guard us. He would save us from the additional pain of dashed hopes. And I think a good, a good check on seeing if our longings are in accord with this command is just consider how you do respond when things don't go according to your expectations. If you lash out in anger, do you become depressed? Do you become morose? Do, do you begin to doubt the goodness of and character of God. That, those are signs that we have set our hope in the wrong thing. We've assumed or presumed that God owes us something or has promised us something that he has not promised us. He has given us many great and wonderful promises. But many of the things we put our hope in are not based upon those promises. So Peter would save us so that nothing can steal our joy. As Peter says in verse 8, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I mean, is that your life? Is that how you would describe 
your attitude? Are you rejoicing with joy unspeakable and full of glory? And again, we've got to remember, he's writing to Christians who are in the midst of fiery trials. So why do they rejoice? Not because life is good. Not because they just got a raise or their football team just won. They rejoice because their certainty is in heaven. They believe His promises and they believe His goodness. His trustworthiness. And their joy is full of glory. So we need to hope eternally. Thirdly, Peter says we should pursue holiness. Verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And we should make certain we we understand what the word holiness means, because it's often misunderstood. The word itself just actually means to be set apart, to be distinct, to, to be not like the rest. When applied to people and things, it means they've been set apart from everything else to be special for God. So that we're be separated from the commoners, the, the hoi polloi, and we, we, to become elite, spiritually special people. People have been set apart by God to be His, to belong to Him. Right? God Himself is holy, so the word, when When we speak of the holiness of God, it means that there's nothing else like Him in all creation. He's totally unique. You you can't compare anything to God. There's no other God but God. He is one. And so the the triune God can't be compared to anything else. But when holiness gets applied to us as people, it means God has set us apart to be His, to belong to Him, just as He is set apart from everything else. So it's, it's, it's a word that actually, when applied to us, it's a word that describes God bringing us to himself and us living in a manner that shows we do belong to him. Now, often we think of holiness as, as referring to moral purity, and that's a good application of it. Like, we should live moral lives because God himself is moral, but that's not the essence of holiness. The primary significance, uh, significance is separateness and distinction. I think the classic fairy tales like Cinderella are, are helpful here. Let me illustrate. Like, like an impoverished girl living as a slave in her own house who is specially selected to be the prince's bride. Likewise, believers have been called out from the domain of darkness to be set apart as God's holy children. We've been called out from this life of slavery to our sinful passions to become part of His royal family. And and the calling to holiness, therefore, has implications upon our behavior, but they're not oppressive implications. And when you hear this call to be holy, you shouldn't think, oh man, that just sounds morose, that sounds burdensome, that just sounds hard and boring. It is not at all what the Bible's talking about when it calls us to holiness. It's freeing, it's, it's honoring, it's, it, it's ennobling. Really, there's no greater calling that you can be called to than to pursue holiness. To share in the glory and holiness of the triune God. 
And this exhortation to pursue a holy life, you'll see it's, it's embedded in the character of God. And this is actually seen implicitly and explicitly. Implicitly, it's seen in Peter's description of believers as children of obedience. It's seen explicitly in how Peter grounds the exhortation in like the one who, the Holy One who called you. And in his citation of Leviticus 19.2, be holy as I am holy. So the call to holiness, therefore, is inextricably linked to God and his character. And so believers here are designated as children of obedience because, precisely because, we're now God's children. And as his children, we naturally want to conform to his character, to be like him. You've heard the phrase, chip off the old block. Frequently, children bear the same characteristics as their parents in some way or fashion. They're not completely like them, but often parents want that. They don't want to be, you know, clones, but, but, but you want your children to like the things that you like and value the things that you value. God's the same way. This description of Christians grounds the following exhortation Peter gives, again, to not be conformed to the lusts of our former ignorance. Right? Even though we were once children of disobedience, that's what we were called in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 3. Ephesians 2 also says we were children of wrath. John 8.44 says we were children of the father of lies, referring to Satan. And now we're children of God, children of obedience. Children who want to be like their father. We once were children, slaves of the evil one, like our father, Satan. And now he has adopted us in his family. Now God is our father. And so we should want to be like God. And follow his instructions rather than the course of this world. And so we're to do what he tells us, not conform to the passions of our former ignorance. It's, re- it's remarkable, actually. The only other time in the Scripture where that word conform is used, you actually know where it is because we've been memorizing Romans 12. It's, it's in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, Paul says. But Peter goes a step deeper into the heart than Paul does. And he says, Christians are not to conform to the lusts of their former ignorance. Not only are we not to to take our cues from the world, not let the world direct us and tell us what is good and true and beautiful, right? We need to get that from the Word of God. But actually, Peter goes one step deeper and he says, don't conform to the lust of your former ignorance. And actually, the the lust, the word lust here speaks uh, not, uh, it goes back down into our desires. Actually, the desires behind why we choose to do evil. Like in Genesis 6-5, where God tells us that the intent of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. It, it actually gets, the word refers to the intents. Like, what are the desires that lead to the evil thoughts that then lead to the evil actions? Paul says, don't listen. I'm sorry, Peter says, don't listen to those lusts. They're wrong. They're liars. They would kill you. They would destroy you. They would torment you. You're not enslaved to them anymore. And that's, that's just why James says when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. These lusts are what lead us to sin. So we're not just 
to not sin. We're not even to, uh, to listen to the lusts that lead to those sins, but put them to death immediately. As John Owen says, we need to be killing sin or sin's going to be killing us. And we need to kill sin right at the desires when those lusts begin to raise their head. Just like weeds in your garden, they need to be immediately snatched out. Peter calls these lusts, lusts of ignorance. They were, they were the lusts that drove our decision making and defined our lives before God revealed his truth to us, before we could see rightly. As Paul told Titus, actually go ahead and look there. It's a good cross-reference. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Maybe 30 pages early in your Bibles, give or take. Titus 3, verse 3, he says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. He's just, Paul's reminding them, you once were just slaves to your passions. And as, you, and, and these, as these Christians would remember that they, the, the things that they are most ashamed of is what just defined their life previously. But now you, you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been set apart to be God's children. Don't go back, don't listen to those lusts anymore. They will destroy you. So again, the command to be holy, is, it's connected to this new relationship we have with God. We're His children now and we need to live like it. And notice, as Peter says, be holy in all your behavior. Literally, in all of your turnings. Whatever your hand decides to do next, it should be done in holiness. It should be done with a, with a view to how God would have you do it. Whether it's changing diapers or watching football, driving to work or disciplining a child. Do what you do in a manner that shows that you belong to God. You are God's man, God's woman, God's child. And it's obvious. And again, this isn't optional for Christians. This is a command. Be holy in all your behavior. Not just what people see. Not just what your family members see at home, but what God sees even in your heart. You need to pursue holiness. And if you don't, you are being disobedient. You're being rebellious. This is a command. Notice why. Since it is written. Right, Peter's citation of Leviticus demonstrates that this this isn't a new concept. This is something that God had commanded His people centuries ago. Right From the beginning, anytime God called a person to be His own, that came with standards, that came with expectations that their lives would change and they would be starkly different from the surrounding cultures. Israel was called to be holy and therefore it was to be obvious that they were nothing like the Gentiles. In fact, 
as we've been reading in the book of Acts, they took that so seriously that when they hear that Gentiles can be saved just like Jews, they get violently angry. Because they, they clearly understood this principle of not conforming to the world around them. At least in their ideas, because many of them, of course, did as we read the Old Testament. Likewise, we need to, to, to be distinct, show that we belong to God. And so holiness, in other words, it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's descriptive of our relationship with God. It's not merely following a new code of conduct or these super spiritual expectations. It's about being with and like our Father. One cannot be in a relationship with God and not be holy. A lack of holiness would indicate a person is not in a relationship with God. A lot of people today will say, oh yeah, I have a relationship with Jesus. Well, it should be obvious then. You would actually know that. You wouldn't need to have to ask because they're living in such a way that shows they have a relationship with Jesus. They live a holy life. And so again, the holiness which you're called to is not simply about acts of piety, but it's it's all pervasive. It should affect all of our being, our thinking, our actions, our desires. Another way of putting this is that holiness is not about what others see, but what God sees. Right? We're to be holy for Him. Because of Him. Because of our relationship with Him. Not because we're trying to impress other people. And so again, before we consider how we need to grow in holiness, I think it's just important that we clarify this principle that it's very easy to pursue holiness out of self-worship. Which, by definition, is not Holiness. Right? Often when people think of holiness, what comes to their mind is very self-righteous people, which is the opposite of holiness. It really is. It's worldliness on steroids. You know, stuck up self-righteousness is, 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 it's actually, that's the world. And religious self-righteousness is the world at its worst. So this is not what Peter's talking about. In fact, there's really nothing impressive about holiness. And there's really nothing impressive about a holy person. Often people think about holy people being those who have made these great sacrifices. And that because they're pursuing holiness, they've given so much up. But the reality is, we're making no greater sacrifice in pursuing holiness than a pauper who's called to be a prince. Starts to live like a prince. Like that. Nobody would look at that street kid who is now called to live as royalty and go, man, that guy is having it hard. What a sacrifice that kid is making. It's like, no, that's an honor. It's a joy to be called to do that. There's nothing impressive about it. It's a blessing. Right? We're only choosing to lead the world of darkness and deceit and enter a world of love and life. Right? Holiness is no more impressive in a Christian than the son of a professional quarterback playing a game of catch with his father in the backyard. He's just being with his dad, doing what his dad does well. Right? That's holiness. Being like his dad. Spending time with his dad. Conforming to the image of his father. 
It's, and I want to just emphasize this. Holiness is about a relationship with God. It's not just about actions. So it really, don't think of holiness as some morose burden to bear, but just, again, being with your loving Father and trying to be like Him. So when it comes to living out holiness, the question we need to ask is, well, how can we be more like our Father in heaven? Well, I think just like in human relationships, it's done the same way, just by spending time with Him. Right? In prayer and in the Word. Hearing from him, receiving his instruction, valuing it, learning about him, his character, his attributes. Think about how God would have you respond as he, to various challenges in your life as truths are presented in the Bible. Right? And just like in any relationship, time and communication is critical. If we're not valuing time with God, we're not going to increase in holiness. We're not going to be like him. We're going to be like the world, our former slave master. The story is uh, told about Alexander the Great, who had a young man come before him who was caught uh, in cowardice in battle. He had run from the fight, something that Alexander himself despised. And Alexander, when he came before him, asked the young man his name. And the young man, knowing that, that Alexander the Great had the power of life and death in his hands, uh, trembled before him. And he could barely speak, and he answered in a trembling voice. The young man said, Alexander. Alexander the Great stood up from his throne and with passion says, What is your name, boy? And the young man responded with even a, a shakier voice. He said, Alexander. Alexander the Great then stepped down from his throne and shouted at the young man. He said, what is your name? And by this, by this time, the, the boy could hardly speak. He was just ready to hear that his life was forfeit. And he, in a barely audible voice, he just trembled out, Alexander. And upon this, Alexander the Great shouted, Well, either change your conduct then, or change your name. Change your conduct, change your name. And likewise, when Peter exhorts Christians to be holy as God is holy, he means that if we're to, if we're to call ourselves Christians, we need to begin to act like Christ in everything that we do. Not just in our behavior, but in our, in our affections, in our thinking, right? Even even where our desires begin to spring up. As the Puritan William Gurnall once wrote, he said, "Don't say that you have royal blood in your veins and are born of God, unless you can prove your pedigree by daring to be holy. Don't say you have royal blood in your veins and you're born of God unless you can prove it. Prove your pedigree by being holy." And it's this calling to pursue holiness and eternal hope and to think critically that I really want to present as a platform for us, a theological platform for how the elders think grace and truth needs to grow in the year ahead. On Wednesday nights, I've been actually preaching through the book of Revelation. Uh, uh, and right now we're almost finished up with the letters to the seven churches in that book. 
And in these letters to the seven churches, Christ basically gives a performance evaluation. And he structures it more or less by telling them what they're doing well, and then he points out what they're doing wrong, and then he calls them to change uh, in their actions in one way or another. And so I want to follow basically the same general format and begin to speak to uh, the present strengths of Grace and Truth Bible Church. Um, The the first two there are, it's hard to just qualify them as strengths because they're enough to, I mean, that's the essence of the Christian life, right? Love for one another and love for the Word. And I would say that is remarkably what what is seen in this church. And um, I, I, just, I mean, that's, that's, that's in many churches, pastors never get to see that from their people. But this is, I would say, it's pervasive within our church. There's a desire to grow. People are engaged. They ask questions. They, 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 they want to get together with the elders. They want to, they want to wrestle with, they want to change with these, when they're stuck spiritually or when they're discouraged. There's a growing commitment to fellowship groups and community groups. I mean, uh, it's remarkable how many people are plugged in in the church and getting regular times of fellowship. It's by far the majority, which is also fairly unusual for many churches. And it just shows that there's a, there's a genuine desire to want to love one another. Not just to be loved, to be cared for, to be known, but to want to care for one another. I mean, that's, that's tremendous. And frankly, it's... it's, it's uh, to me, it's been the biggest encouragement to me over the last six months because there's just been so many trials. I just feel like I don't even, I can't, I don't even know how to meet the needs beyond just praying. I mean, I try to, there's just so many people that I could check in with and I, I feel like I've totally failed. But it's been such an encouragement to see how much just Mark and Ben are doing on their own and checking in with people. But not just that, how the rest of the body has stepped up. And that's really what the body of Christ is meant to be, according to Ephesians 4, that each part would do its share as it ministers to one another. And there's a building up of the body in love. And that's happening. I mean, that's, that's amazing. I mean, there are churches that have been around for 200 years, and that doesn't happen. And we're this small church in Forest Grove, and it's, it's prevalent. And so I don't want that to cease at all, and it's been such an encouragement to my heart. I love your love for one another. It's so evident. It means the world to me. But there are ways we can grow. And in particular, we can continue to grow in our maturity. When people ask about grace and truth and how I I try to just explain, I I would say it's actually, I would define it as a fairly spiritually immature church. And I don't mean that as an insult any more than, you know, saying baby Andrew's immature. (laughs) It's not a problem. It's just where they're at, right? And I think as a church, there's just evidences of many areas we need to grow up into Christ-likeness. Um, and I mentioned this actually was where I, went, where I thought we should be growing six months ago. And I think we have grown, but I think we can grow all the more in this. Um, in particular, there's still a lack of commitment by many of the members and attenders to serve in some sort of formal ministry. There's people that we're getting together, we're going to community groups, but there's there's many needs in the church, just minor things, like something, a good, just an example, we're having our fellowship meal today. Uh, there's, there's There were many vacancies on there that could have been filled. Um, 
right? I mean, it's not a sin, but it's like this is a great way for us to serve. And in order for us to bless one another, it's good if we're all involved and not just a few. But that's true in other things. We could always use more nursery workers, uh, more people to help in the snack ministry or ushering. Or, and these are not major things. But, but one of the marks of maturity is you take responsibility. Right? Mature, uh, like young men. Like, you know, a mature young man, a mature young lady, not just when they're able to take care of themselves, but they, they begin to take care of other people. They're not just thinking about themselves, but they're thinking about, man, other people are relying upon me. And we need to grow in that, I think. Um, uh, you know, another example of this is elders are pretty spread thin on Sundays, often because we're just trying, because there's needs that need to be met, uh, practical needs um, that could be met by other people in the church, but nobody stepped up into those needs. And so we're just, we're spread thin. And often the challenge of that is then we, negle- we end up neglecting people often because we don't see everybody during the week. And so we, then we actually don't have a chance to talk with people. Um, and we've tried to make some adjustments to that, but there's, in order for us to be faithful, to care for people spiritually and to converse with like uh, visitors or just people who are struggling and discouraged, like we can't be spread so thin on Sundays. And so we could use other members of the body to help us with that. Um, people will still regularly confess a lack of commitment to personal devotions. So as we talk in discipleship groups, it's, it's a regular Thing that people say, I'm just struggling to get time in the Word of God, right? struggling to get time in prayer. Um, that shouldn't be the case. We should all be getting regular time in the Word. It's not, it's not hard. Prayer is the easiest thing that you can do. You can, sleeping is harder <laughs> for, for many people, especially as you get older. Sleeping is harder than prayer. Right? We can all pray. We can all read. So it's something we just, we just got to Growing, be more committed to. And, and we'd also, uh, there's, we're, we're discouraged as an elder team because of the lack of commitment in the church to Sunday school attendance and uh, attending the Wednesday night prayer services. You might have noticed that we're bringing that up in the announcements regularly, and that's because we really do want to see that change. Um, it's, it's, it, is, it is a discouragement. Um, there's enough trials for us to be discouraged by, but when we see half the church leave, when many of those people could really benefit from what we're teaching in Sunday school, it's, it's hard. Um, and so that's just honesty, right? That's not, I'm not saying that to shame you. It's just that's just the reality of what we bear as elders. Um, within families, right, we, we really think that uh, in particular, we need to improve in how we function as families. And, and husbands truly learning to live with their lives in an understanding way, to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Um, like uh, Wives submitting to their husbands, respecting their husbands as they're commanded. Uh, children obeying their parents and, and fathers bringing them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Um and I, I say that because I, w- I believe, probably to a person, every person would defend those biblical principles, that that's how families should function, according to the Bible. But, but there's a big difference from believing something is true and actually living it out. And from what we know, the families, is we could really grow in these areas. And so what we're going to do, um, practically speaking, I think I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, we're actually going to devote... 
Uh, we're going to just pause our uh, study of the book of Acts and do a short sermon series on the biblical family in the weeks ahead to try and just lay a good, solid biblical foundation um, and really flesh out what does it look like to actually lead your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord? What does it look like to respect a husband that you don't have respect for? What does it look like to love your wife when she doesn't deserve you to love her like Christ loved the church? Right? We didn't deserve Christ's love, but he loved us that way anyway. So what does it look like? Practically speaking, none of us are going to climb on a cross. So what does it look like? And just to flesh that out and and to, to just be clear on what those responsibilities are so we can hold one another accountable. Are we doing this? So it's it, taking this, the idea of the biblical family out of the abstract and put it into real life. We want to do that. And all these things, so these are all, I think, evidences of spiritual, uh, how we need to grow, grow up spiritually. Evidences of spiritual immaturity. But I want to also emphasize this. The elders recognize that we are the ones that are responsible for this. And it's a, it's a tremendous weight. We are the ones that are going to have to give an account for Christ on how well we have enabled the families in this church to pursue Christ-likeness. How well did we hold people accountable to following Christ? How well did we teach the Word? We are the ones that are going to be called before the throne, and we're going to have to explain why we did what we did and, and own up to our failures. And that is not, I don't say that lightly. Um, it, it brings me to tears frequently. As it says in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, the apostle exhorts, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. That's, and that's why, guys, we're not interested in just getting, being bigger, more numbers, more money. That's not, that has no interest in us because God is not going to ask us, how come your budget wasn't bigger? But he's going to ask us, how come that person fell away? How come that person didn't know what it actually means to be a biblical husband? And so help us in this. So that, that you too could just, could just rejoice when we have to stand before the throne and give an account that it wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't be heavier uh, than it might be, but a joyful time. So the elders have committed to improve our oversight in shepherding the body, and, and beyond teaching, we're committed to, to increasing our accountability and, and care for for you members in the church, especially towards heads of the home. Uh, we, we're purposely pursuing all the men. Uh, and the church, and um, in order to know how we can best care and shepherd them and instruct and encourage. And we want to help you men especially learn how to care and lead your families. And uh, we believe if we do our jobs better as elders, then the heads would do their jobs better as a family, and then everybody would thrive. In fact, I would actually just encourage the husbands in this room just even to take some time this fall and to do a similar thing, have a similar state of the family assessment. You sit down with your wife or your kids and you just say, hey, this is, this is how I think we need to grow. 
you would take responsibility for the growth of your family and not just be passive. But take initiative, come up with plans and follow through with those plans to grow. So, in, in application of this text in particular, we would like to see the members of our church become more committed to grow in biblical thinking. Right? Just an increased commitment to, to spiritual learning and growth with in Sunday school, the, the Wednesday night services, the discipleship groups. We want people to read the book of the quarter. Right? It's not just the, uh, we, we, we offer this because we really think this will be helpful to you spiritually, especially Desiring God. It's one of the most impactful books I've ever read. It's an easy read, and it's, it's so uh, stimulating. Uh, it, it'll, it'll stir up your heart if you take it seriously to want to live for Him, for God. And so we encourage you to, to again, grab it if possible. And as Ben said, it's almost available in every format. So if you're not a reader, get the audiobook, And that'll be also helpful to you. We're also trying to raise the bar of our expectations. I mentioned this to the men's discipleship group. One of the things that men, the elders realize is we're probably overly gracious. And there are times, so just know we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna raise the bar, raise the standard. Not to be mean, but because we have to. Because again, if how, what kind of leaders are we if we're not holding people accountable to what they know to be right? And so pray for us in this because that's not natural for us. Um, and so, but, we, but, it's, but it's, it's incumbent upon us to, to raise the bar of our expectations. And we want you as a, as a church to, to strive to decrease in your distractions, right? To, to, to increase in um, personal discipline with your phones, how much entertainment you're engaging in. Just to, again, think critical, to, 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 to think clearly. So secondly, we want to see our members grow in their eternal hope, right? There's no, there, I do not assume that the trials we're facing are going to let up, right? If it hasn't hit your family, it'll probably come soon. And um, how can you not despair? Right? And train yourself to fix your hope on what is certain. Namely, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and all the promises and blessings he'll bring with him. Thirdly, we want to see people have a more zealous pursuit of holiness. Making decisions that show you live for God's glory and no longer for the lust of your flesh. Joyfully seeking to be like your father in everything that you do. And making this your priority versus increasing in income or getting good grades in academics or having fun. Making holiness your priority. So some practical adjustments we're, we're making as a church. This will go, I've mentioned a number of these things already, so go fast through this. We're going to pause on our sermon series and do a sermon series on the biblical home. We're going to take more purposeful discipleship with the men, seeking to grow up more leaders and increase accountability. We, we have these Sunday school classes that have been announced on uh, fundamentals of the faith, fundamentals of reformed doctrine, and shepherding a child's heart. The book of the quarter we're going to read is Desiring God. Um, and we're going to continue to pray for these things. Um, not just say, hey guys, let's go out and do it. But we're committed to praying. It's, the, it's a theme in all of our Wednesday night prayer services. God, do this. Right? We need God's help to bring these things about. So, um, just in conclusion, when I finished the State of the Church message six months ago, essentially I, I presented to the church ten goals that we had. And just, in essence, this is what, they really boil down to these things. 
We wanted the church to memorize Romans 12 as a church, which many have done. We encourage each family to consider giving 2% more of their income and to increase their personal devotion to the means of grace, time in the Word, time in prayer. And we've seen, we've seen growth in these things. Um, we also encourage families to begin instilling a time of family worship where it's not just each individual in the family getting time in the Word and prayer, but as a family, they're actually spending time together. And we've seen growth in that. And so I've reworked a few of these goals, but they're largely the same goals. And so it might be hard. It is really hard probably for you to see these. Um, but I'll print these out in, in the weeks ahead. Uh, maybe you can come up with a flyer or something that's laminated so you can uh, keep these with you and know how you can be praying for the church in the year ahead. But we want to just continue to have the church grow in our worship, in our spiritual devotion to the word and to prayer, to fellowship. But we want to also, what I've added is that there would be an increased commitment to attend Sunday school classes and the Wednesday prayer service. Um, and that the elders would have wisdom to not a shepherd the individuals in the church. And uh, that God would continue to inspire church members to be even more generous than they've already been. And so... Um, essentially, we want to grow. We want to, we want to not let off the gas because that's our vision as a church. It's why we exist. Again, we're not, we're not trying to just get more staff. We're not just trying to have a bigger building or make a name for ourselves, you know, have some sort of television show one day. That's not, that's not, that's just silly. What we want is we want each person here to grow up into Christ-likeness. And so we want each of you to be committed to that same end as well. And so consider what part you can play um, but in particular, do not neglect pray that God would do this within each one of us. Let me close in prayer and uh, then we'll sing. Quite simply, Father, I pray that you would not allow these goals to be vain goals, but that you actually would bring these things to fruition because we believe this is your will for us individually as in a church that we would each of us grow in Christ's likeness and our love for you, our commitment to you, our commitment to want to care for one another, that we'd grow in our responsibility um, and that, that more people would, would feel integrated within the church and, and bear uh, the responsibility of caring for one another even more than they already have. And that it wouldn't be a burden, but it would be a joy. Again, God, that you would increase us in holiness Help us to think clear and that you would help us to, to set our minds, our hopes on your return, Lord. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.